This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. So this is Laura interviewing Joe Callingham for the Jodcast. Joe is an astronomer, a postdoc researcher at Astron at the moment. So Joe, how's it going? How have you been liking Manchester so far? Oh, it's been enjoyable so far. It's kind of funny as an Australian to be back in the UK. It's like a, a shade of my own country. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Netherlands is nice too, right? But I, Manchester is better. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely lovely to be here. So what are you working on at the moment? So I'm I'm a reasonably random I think uh, researcher at the moment. Uh, so I did my PhD on how radio galaxies evolve and change. And lately, my fellowship at uh, Astron, I've been focusing pretty much uh, on stars a lot more. So particularly, I've been focusing on what's called a colliding wind binary. These are two massive stars uh, orbiting each other, and their winds are so fast and so full of mass that when they collide, they emit in X-rays and radio, so they get to super millions of degrees. Uh, Celsius at the shock front and otherwise I've just been looking at boring old stars also in the radio but I don't know I don't think they're that boring well yeah I mean when I when I was told that I was looking at stars I was like oh come on stars <laughs> as <laughs> yeah, a pulsar person you go yeah. stars uh, I think everyone does that uh, I reckon <laughs> yeah. it's untapped potential you know stars at radio frequencies hot new field <laughs> yep exactly watch out it's coming <laughs> it's coming for you <laughs> so these these colliding wind binaries what yeah. are you looking in both x-rays and radio at them and what what do you yeah. sort of find out about uh, yeah them? so that's an interesting question so uh the, they're one of those few objects that pretty much emit across the electromagnetic spectrum actually um they're probably the faintest in optical light like light we see with our eyes mm-hmm. but um yeah you're really really focusing on the shock when when these two winds that are traveling and say uh, millions of kilometers an hour, you know, like 3,500 kilometers a second, when they collide, they really get quite hot and emit uh, at, at x-rays. And because you've got magnetic fields, you get synchrotron emission as well. So you see it in the radio. Um, yeah, they're they're interesting. They give us insights into how massive stars die, all kinds of fun stuff like that. So they have to be massive stars? And are they really close together or? Yeah. So they have to be massive stars, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a few types of stars that are known to be in colliding wind binaries. So these O-type stars, they're about as much as 20 times the mass of our sun. If you get two of those together, you can get it. But uh, the ones that probably make the most spectacular colliding wind binaries, you know, the kind of top of the mountain in terms of craziness and just emission characteristics, are Wolf Ray stars. Mm-hmm. These are stars that were massive stars, just like those O-type stars, but they're more evolved versions. These are stars... They consider being near the end of their lives, you know, they're in the last few percent, and uh, they're just losing mass quite rapidly, they're quite unstable. And so, yeah, so my colleagues, uh, Peter Tuthill in, in Sydney and Ben Pope in uh, in New York, uh, and myself, obviously, we found a really interesting one that uh, kind of confounded our expectations and was very pretty. So how rare are these things then? Because I can imagine when we normally have two stars evolving together, often mm-hmm. one evolves way faster and yeah. then goes supernova and ends up with a black hole or a pulsar or something yeah. like that. That's kind of, our, I guess, our stereotypical idea mm-hmm. of a binary evolution. You have two different mass stars or even similar mass stars, but on different timescales. Mm-hmm. So how rare is it to end up with two massive stars, both at this wind stage? It's a, a, a very good question and something I've been annoying a lot of the theorists about. So, Funnily enough, often massive stars almost always appear, occur in binary pairs, you mm-hmm. know, so often they appear together. Um, and I'm not enough expert to tell you exactly the reasoning behind that, but, um, like 70, I think it's something like ridiculous, like 70% of all massive stars are actually in a binary. Mm-hmm. And then, so evolution isn't that ridiculous when you think about it in terms of like if they're very similar masses, they can actually go to similar evolutionary stages. 
not saying that's guaranteed. So how many would, so this system we found, we hypothesized likely it's actually two Wolf-Rayet stars next to each other. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to some of these other colliding wind binaries, it's a maybe two O type stars, which makes a lot of sense to find a lot more of those because you, a star lives its life in an O star, uh, O star type, uh, for a lot longer than a Wolf-Rayet phase. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what's the, possibility of getting two wolf rays together is a question i don't think we can quite know the answer to um and there's a couple of, this is not the first one there's at least one other known um for for listeners that are interested 40 uh wolf ray 48a is also known as a double wolf ray so yeah now we're starting to get a few of these as the question is for the theorists and the evolutionary uh modelers is like is this expected you know um i don't know the answer to that so are you, are you trying to look for more? What what telescope are you using? Are you using like really low frequency radio or yeah. mid range? What what? Sort yeah, of so it's super you? odd. This emerged from. So I'm very lucky in my position at Astron, and I only can thank them enough is that I've given a lot a lot of freedom. You know, so obviously my PhD was on this galaxy evolution stuff, but um, right at the end of my thesis, I was kind of pottering around and found something that looked like a peak spectrum source. So. For, for people that are interested, I worked on things that essentially, um, if you looked at the, the flux with frequency, instead of just getting brighter at low frequencies, they actually started to, to fall over and decline. And that tells us stuff about how galaxies change. And I just had a, a dumb thought. It was like, I wonder how much of this, what, what these kind of sources look like where they rise and fall. You know, they have this peak in their spectrum in the radio. I wonder what, what galactic sources show this kind of properties. And I had an interesting source long ago that was sitting in my back of my brain from, from my honors research when I was a young whippersnapper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just checked it out and I was like, wow, this kind of correlates. And so I, with Peter and Ben, we followed it up with the very large telescope in Chile and we did infrared imaging and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff that really showed us that, uh, this is a spectacular image uh, that we made that are in the dust. And it shows this very complicated kind of Archimedean spiral, kind of like the shells of, a, a, um, the spiral of a shell, and it was phenomenal uh, picture that we made, and it kind of confounded our understanding of how these colliding wind binary physics should really apply. Okay, so then if it's got a sort of a peaked spectrum, then you probably can't look at it at the lowest frequency. Yeah, so it's not that. So the weird thing is that it's about, I don't know how, how much details we want to go into, but it goes from essentially 300 millijanskis to nothing. Uh, 300 millijanskis at 300 megahertz mm-hmm. to nothing at 150 megahertz. So okay. that's a rapid decline. Um, I, it's exponential. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's gone from something that would be very standard to observe with any telescope at 300 megahertz. Like that, that brightness is very easy to do. Mm-hmm. And then for it to disappear in that small frequency range is quite odd. Um, even more odd than any galaxy. Mm-hmm. So it just just completely drops off. Just disappears. Disappears. Mm-hmm. Nice. And do you have any other candidates for this sort of thing, or is that just kind of because you say you mm-hmm. did it in your honours? For those of you yeah. who don't know, honours is like a fourth year undergraduate. So in the UK, that would be an MPhil, yeah. um, but in Australia, it's an honours. I'll trust your translation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As an Australian. Yeah, exactly. Living in the UK. He's lived overseas. <laughs> um, so so yeah, you, you just sort of. I guess, happened across this object, like a lot of astronomy happens that way, where we just stumble across things. But so are you looking for more or is anybody looking for more? Yeah, definitely looking for more. So we just completed a survey of the galactic plane. So one of my part of my thesis uh, that I didn't fully explain was producing an all sky survey with this new radio telescope in the Southern Hemisphere called the Murchison Whitefield Array. Now, this is a similar, listeners might have heard of the thing called LOFAR that's also in, in the Netherlands. This is kind of like the Southern Hemisphere version of this. It's not as, as expensive, so it hasn't got all the bells and whistles, but so it can't go as deep and it hasn't got as high resolution. But the big winner 
for the telescope is its uh, spectral coverage. It, it, an observation with that telescope means you get instantaneous coverage from 72 megahertz to 230 megahertz. That's like a, right in the FM band, and so this has to be located in the middle of nowhere, Western Australia, you know, where there's like one big toe per square kilometer of people, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, if that <laughs> gives a good vi- vision for the <laughs> listeners. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, what is it? It's 100 people, but it's the size of the Netherlands? Yeah, I think, I think it's the, the size area. of the Netherlands. I yeah. can't remember these off the, off the top of my head. But, like, yeah. uh, middle of bloody nowhere Australia. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much as isolated as you can get, which makes it really good for radio astronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I helped produce an all-sky survey with that, and uh, we're just about to release with Natasha Hurley-Walker, largely leading it and Paul Hancock, and um, we're producing the galactic plane at the moment. And so there's a whole bunch of these that turn over in the galactic plane. The question is, are they extra galactic? Are they galactic? Mm -hmm. I just haven't had the time at the moment to research it because obviously I've got other interests, as I was saying early on. Yeah, so there's just a lot of future work to go for this one. It's not... No, in, so in terms of now. population studies, it is, but this is an oddball. These are This this colliding wind binary that Peter and Ben and I discovered... Um, is one of those outliers of a population that can kind of open a new way of thinking about a population. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's just got accepted in nature astronomy, so it should be out soon. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a really fun thing to work on. And to be honest, as I said, and I hope the listeners by the time they hear this can also look at the image or seen it in press releases or something, it is a, a lovely image. And this is one of the reasons I know, obviously, I'm a scientist, I want to send questions and answers, but I'm also an astronomer and there's something to be said about making pretty pictures. Yeah, that's a, it's always nice in radio astronomy. You often get some yeah. nice. Well, like my just... PhD was looking at, at what, is this line curved yes. or straight? Was pretty much my PhD. So when yeah. I make a pretty image, it was like, hmm, yes. <laughs> this is what I became an astronomer for, right? <laughs> nice. So you also said you were working on boring stars. Can you tell us about that, or is it top secret? Uh, it's not not too much top secret. So they're boring stars in the sense that they're just solar mass stars or less. And so, again, uh, I mentioned a colleague named Ben Pope. He was visiting me. And uh, now at Astron, we're producing probably, well, at the deepest all-sky survey that's ever been done. And so mm-hmm. we're achieving, we're able to go so deep now that the question was, wonder what we can see. So when you turn on, a, on, when you look at the night sky with your eyes, right, everything you see is stars, right, pretty much, with your naked eye. There's, with a few exceptions in the Southern Hemisphere, which is a much more beautiful sky, by the way, you can see galaxies really easily, at least two, um, and you can kind of make out Andromeda with your eye, right? I'm yeah, showing. yeah, if, if you're lucky. <laughs> if you squint. Yeah, but we've got a lot of dust and stuff in the Southern Hemisphere as well that's blocking the light from the stars and the, yeah. the, the, the Milky Way. I yeah. mean, we are luckier in the Southern Hemisphere if you yeah. haven't been down. Yeah, I recommend, I recommend actually it. going down south and seeing the sky. <laughs> this is what happens when you've got two Aussies talking on the podcast. <laughs> we it's just like brag about how nice over. the sky is. <laughs> it is. It's much prettier. There's yeah, no exactly. doubt about it. It's actually objectively true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, so uh, when you look in the night sky with your eyes, you see stars. You're dominated by stellar emission. Even when you see a galaxy, what you're seeing is stars. Mm-hmm. When you turn on your... If I could replace your eyes with a radio antenna, mm-hmm. you're pretty much dominated by extragalactic emission, largely from, um, except obviously with the exception of the galactic plane, uh, largely from material falling onto black holes. So mm-hmm. if I just gave you a source, randomly, Laura, and I said, here, here's a radio source... of the time you can say that is most likely a extra galactic source. That's a, that's a galaxy far away. You know, obviously I know you study pulsars and all that kind of fun stuff, but how many pulsars are known? 3,000. 3,000. Yeah. Yeah. We're, (laughs) this survey we just conducted is 300,000 in 400 square degrees of largely galaxies, right? There's loads more. (laughs) So there's loads more. So like, I think 99.9% of all catalog radio sources Mm -hmm. are probably extra galactic. Yeah. 
Um, so at least 99%. Um, so the question became with this idea was that now we're going so deep, maybe we're hitting the tip of this iceberg where we can start see stars just like the optical guys see stars. Mm-hmm. And it was just a fun little project that I thought would be, I don't know, why not have, have a little bit of a side project and an enjoyment. And this is where uh, another astronomer called Harish uh, turned up at Astron uh, as a staff member. And uh, we kind of bounced a few ideas off each other and we went down this path of studying uh, boring old stars. So the question is, what do they look like at these frequencies? They're very basic questions. I only work on basic things, you know, mm. like a very, I, I'm not a in-depth, nitty-gritty kind of guy. I'm just like, what does this look like at these frequencies, you know? Does this make sense? And so, yeah, that's what I've been working on lately. So how did you spot these things then? If you said that, you know, most of the time it's not a star, it's yeah. probably something elsewhere, yeah. then how do you how do you find the things that How are you confident? Yeah, how do you yeah. go, okay, that one, that's mm. in our galaxy, or it's likely to be in our galaxy anyway, because, you know, we're astronomers, we know that not everything is 100% sure, but how would you, you be able to differentiate, say, that's not a quasar, you know, that's at a redshift of whatever, that's actually a star in our galaxy? Yeah, that's really hard, because essentially, as I said, you know, if I gave you a... A, a radio source, you would say 99.9% that's going to be a extragalactic source by itself. So mm-hmm. how do you assess the association with that in a star? And uh, and so essentially all I'm trying to do is convince you. The funny thing is back in the past, I know, I'm going to go on a history diatribe okay. here. Let, let's just take a tangent here. Um, the fun part was a long, a long time ago when radio astronomy was first turning on, you know, when the experiments being done here in Jodrell and stuff at the University of Sydney and obviously uh, in Cambridge as well. Um, they had this problem where they actually, everyone thought these radio sources were stars and they had to spend all this time showing that majority of these radio sources are actually extragalactic. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, 60, problem. 70 years later, it's the reverse problem where I'm like, everyone's like, everything's extragalactic. I have to do this reverse problem of convincing people it's a star. Yeah. Um, so the, the, uh, answer is, is a few things. So. Obviously, what you need is a cross-match. So, when mm-hmm. I look in my optical catalogs and my radio catalogs, I need the position of the star and the radio source to line up, mm-hmm. right? But that doesn't guarantee anything because there's lots of stars and there's lots of radio galaxies. And so, the accuracy of how well you know the position of your radio source is quite poor relatively to the accuracy, I mean, the density of, of stars in the sky. Mm-hmm. So. In terminology to stat speak, you tend to be dominated by false positives, right? If I just throw a billion stars at the sky and then I throw 300,000 radio sources with a largest error circle, the chances of them just by chance lining up is quite high. Yeah. So you can't just do it on that. So the next thing you do is the type of emission characteristics you expect from a star. And so stars are known to be variable emission. So from, from particularly stars like M dwarfs, which are much smaller than our sun, these are kind of red stars. They tend to show these flares, and so they turn on and off. You know, so variability is one way of doing that. Uh, unlike extragalactic sources at these low frequencies, remember we're talking about FM frequency bands. Um, so like what you turn turn your radio on in your car to listen to to listen to some DJ. Um, yeah, it sounds super old, then. Yeah, yes. some DJ. <laughs> kids, <laughs> listen you know. to music. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, you, yeah, so you expect variability not from AGM, but you do from these stars. Mm-hmm. And then the final one, which is a little bit more complicated, is polarization. So the way the light is emitted from the emission characteristics, uh, from stars tend to be what's called circularly polarized. And so I know listeners are probably familiar with polarized glasses, you know, so you have reflection from surfers. That just means the light is kind of preferentially, preferentially emitted in a certain direction. 
Um, so we just kind of look for what's called circular polarization, which is unique to stars generally. Very, especially high polarization fraction, um, circularly polarized. Awesome. So have you found anything interesting? So we've got our first detection, which is exciting. That's so cool. this is an oddball. So there's only been one other detection of these low frequencies of a, of a star, and this is a well-known star called UV SETI. This is a group um, coming out of Sydney and Perth, and uh, in, in Australia, obviously. Um, and uh, this one's an oddball. It's kind of throwing our, our uh, ideas out the door about how emissions really emerge from these stars. Now, so most stars we've seen in the radio are really uh, basic normal, uh, what I would, when the astronomers speak, non-degenerate, i.e. they're not neutron stars, they're not white dwarfs, mm-hmm. they're just stars like our yeah. sun, right? They're just burning hydrogen to helium in the core. Uh, the majority of these emissions come from very magnetically, magnetically active stars, so they tend to be rapidly rotating, as opposed to our sun that rotates quite slowly over... Right, what's the period of rotation of the sun again? A, I, don't, I don't know, but the sun doesn't really do that much. We still have flares and things, of course, like people have probably heard about mm. solar flares and um, making the aurora and yep. things like that, but they're not crazy powerful, are they? They're not from the sun, relatively. Yeah. And so these things are quite powerful, and so they're rapidly rotating. So I mean, like, they rotate on day scale, um, mm-hmm. and they... They're very X-ray bright, even quiescently. So outside of a flare, they're quite easy to see in the X-rays. Mm-hmm. And so this this star and and the flares that come from these things, while they definitely have a distribution, they tend to be short. You know, like a flare from a, a star like this tend to last twenty minutes or maybe even an hour, but mm-hmm. they're quite rare to go longer than that. Um, there's been a few exceptions, but it's it's reasonably rare. Um, so the star we found is an oddball in all these characteristics. Okay, it's an M-type star, but it's a very slow rotator. It rotates at least a 130-day period, you know. So, whoa, that's odd, you know, when a classic one, I'll just throw a name out there called AD Leo, rotates on like a two-day timescale, you know. So we're talking yeah. about 130 compared to two. And it's also not seen in the X-rays. Even though it's being observed with yeah. some of the X-ray telescopes, it's uh, not detected. So mm-hmm. it's at least two orders of magnitude uh, fainter in uh, in X-rays than AD Leo or UV SETI, these other well-known radio-emitting stars. So, um, how do we make sense of this? So, the mission is also weird. The the mission we get from this star uh, goes for eight hours, you know, pretty much on, mm-hmm. you know, the whole time. It doesn't show, like, a sharp drop. We, we can see it go for eight hours, and it's uh, what, what we call broadband. Often, a lot of these flares show very sharp frequency uh, structure, you know. So, for example, it'll just drop off after, say, I don't know, let's say 200 megahertz, and it just it's not seen anymore. Uh, this just is on for the whole band of, uh, of LOFAR. So it lasts for the, the flare itself lasts yeah. for way longer, like yeah. a few times longer than yeah. we ever expected. To well, see. not commonly expected, yeah. yeah. So the, the question then becomes: Is this a rare event, or is this emission from other body? Mm-hmm. We're very, we're, we're, this is totally preliminary work, and so we're still trying to understand mm-hmm. what's going on. And I guess most of the mechanisms that we know about, we'd expect it to be the shorter, the shorter flares that we see yes. now, the dynamo models and things like yeah. that of of stars. This yeah. rotation that you talked about. Yes. So, yeah, that's a, the difficult part of it, actually. And and the question then becomes, if we just got lucky here with the type of star? Because, like, before this time, no one ever went this deep in an all-sky field of view, mm-hmm. you know? And so these things are reasonably rare to see a flare from this type of star. You know, if I wrote to the for, to, to a very large array, like a, a very famous radio telescope in America, uh, say, let's say 10 years ago, and I said, I want to stare at this random M-dwarf, that's not known to rapidly rotate and it has no shown characteristics. And I want to look at it for 12 hours or more. You know, I want to occupy this uh, Premier Institute for, for a long time. That The tack would probably go, 
no way, yeah, Jose, you, you know, <laughs> like, well, you're not going to waste our time like that. Yeah. And so maybe our selection criteria, all the previous radio searches have been mm-hmm. heavily biased. Yeah. You know, so maybe this happens all the time. You know, maybe there is a giant flare from Nemstar that lasts eight hours, you know, and we just have a bad selection window with this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we really need to understand that. And that's what I've been working on for a moment. And this got me excited. So I've been initiating a population study more along these lines with obviously Tim Chimwell and Harish from uh, from uh, Astro. Nice. That sounds really cool. And you're looking for more of these kind of objects and that sort yeah, of Yeah, more of these kind of objects and all that kind of fun stuff, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. The holy grail in this field, obviously, is that the emission isn't coming from the star at all. It's actually coming from a, a companion. So we see this often in the solar system, you know, so you have a Jupiter uh, and you have a moon right near it called Io and you have this kind of interaction that causes emission quite bright at low frequencies. Um, from from material from Io passing through the magnetic field of Jupiter, and you get this aurora that actually comes. Mm-hmm. That's quite bright in the radio, just like aurora you see in uh, uh, in the in in the northern and southern hemisphere. I think we say aurora really badly with our accent, by the way. Aurora, yeah. aurora. You know, yeah, going, wow. How else do you say? <laughs> I don't know, but I feel like other people say it so much nicer. Yeah, that's true. I feel true. like we have very harsh yeah. R's and A's. It's like, true. It just, just sort of merges all into one swoosh. <laughs> <laughs> True. We apologize for that. We can't help our accents. Yeah, that's right. And I'm we actually sure think they're pretty grating. great. Yeah. <laughs> that's we, we, grating on your ears, Aurora. <laughs> we think our accents are pretty great. So, I mean, not, we're not going to change it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, so yeah. So, you're thinking that maybe, like, just as a, a as an idea, it could be coming from some sort of yeah. linked system between two objects rather than just the, the star itself. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's possible one explanation. But uh, we still have a lot more work to do and mm-hmm. I understand that. But that would be exciting. That sounds really cool. cool. We're excited to see more about that then. Yeah, fingers crossed. All right, awesome. We might have to wrap up there, Joe. So thanks for that. That sounds really cool. We'll keep an eye out for that Nature Astronomy um, paper and the the press release articles. We'll hopefully be able to include some links um, in on the Jodcast website for that so that you you all can uh, have a bit of a read and keep an eye out for Flare Star stuff from Joe as well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Laura, and I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for being here, Joe. All right, bye-bye. See ya. 